Good morning. morning. Get your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke 21. Luke 21, we'll look at verses 5 to 19. A little while ago, uh, someone in the tradition service asked me, when are you going to preach on the end times? Well, today, (laughs) and in two weeks, and then twice in July or August during the First Thessalonians series. So uh, four times this summer, wow. I don't know that I've preached on the end times four times in one summer ever before. But it will be in 2018. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father, as we talk a little bit about the end times, we ask, Lord, that it would be more than just thinking through what will happen. Oh, we want to know that. And more than dividing little pieces of Scripture that sincere believers might disagree on. We don't want to do that. But we ask, Father, that as we think through this, biblically and theologically, We also might think through it practically, how it matters, and how knowing what is to come impacts how we live today. Father, we ask that that would be what takes place, that that would be our heartbeat, and that you would guide that process. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Well, this morning I'm going to talk a little bit about the Olivet Discourse. Scholars call it the Olivet Discourse because, well, (laughs) Jesus gave it from the Mount of Olives. That's profound, I know. As I thought about uh, the end times, the Olivet Discourse, I thought about an illustration that might even double as a little strategy for how to take a vacation with your children or grandchildren. I know that this is not like your family, but with the Smith family, they have four young cherubs. Traveling can be a bit of a challenge. And every year, the Smith family travels about 10 hours in the car to get to their destination. And actually, the 10 hours, including stops, is more like 14 hours. It just sounds like bliss, doesn't it? And with those four cherubs in the backseat, I know it doesn't happen with your kids or grandkids, but these four are always saying, are we there yet? He looked at me, she touched me. He took my toy, I gotta go real bad. And on and on and on. And by the time they arrive, mom and dad are frazzled and a bit annoyed. And that's the way they begin this family joy time called vacation. And so one particular year, Mrs. Smith devised a new plan. She went to the bank and she purchased four rolls of quarters. A roll of quarters is $10. And so it has 40 quarters. And just before they got in the car, she lined up her four cherubs and she gave each of them a roll of quarters, 40 quarters. And she said to them, you may have all that you are able to retain 
on vacation. You can do with it whatever you want, which was a lot of money for these four kids. And they were all excited. But she said, there's one little caveat. Every time you complain, you owe me a quarter. Every time you fight, you owe me a quarter. Every time there's a disruption in the back seat, one or more of you will forfeit a quarter. You have 40 of them. Use them wisely. Now you might wonder how it worked out for the Smith family. Well, two of the kids did exceptionally well. Now you have to understand there's a learning curve, right? They've got to figure out where the line is. So they, they put their toe across the line and mom collected a quarter. So there's a learning curve. So none of them are really going to have all 40, but two of them retained about 36 or 35 of their quarters. One of them kept around 28 or 30 of his quarters, and one of them lost all 40 quarters in 45 minutes. <laughs> but herein lies the problem. Nobody wanted to fight with him. Nobody wanted to argue with him. He could poke and prod but the others had nothing to do with it. They wanted to keep their quarters. And Mrs. Smith said it was the best road trip they ever had. Now, how does that to have anything to do with the end times? Well, at the moment in which you and I accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we pray and ask Christ to come into our heart, to forgive us of our sins, to become our Savior... At that moment, we are declared righteous, we are justified, and we begin a lifelong process called sanctification. And sanctification doesn't end until either we die and go home to glory, we are glorified, or Jesus Christ returns at the rapture. And from the moment in which we accept Christ until the moment of glorification of the rapture, unbelievably, this God who has already bought us with a price, redeemed us through faith in Jesus Christ, if indeed we've accepted Christ as Savior. This God allows us to earn extra eternal quarters in heaven for good behavior. Good behavior is God-centered, God-glorifying, God-honoring behavior. It is behavior that glorifies the Lord rather than self. It is behavior that is kingdom focused. And unbelievably, instead of taking quarters away, God gives us eternal quarters, eternal rewards in heaven. What kind of great God do we serve? Now, what kind of behavior is God going to require of us? Today, we'll see four types. Focus on truth. Focus on courage in Christ. Focus on ministry and focus on perseverance. I want to pick up in our text and we'll look at the first one, focus on truth. Let me read verses 5 to 8. And while some were speaking of the temple, we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem. It's not there now. It was destroyed in AD 70. And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, 
when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he, Jesus said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. As Jesus begins his prophetic talk, talking about the future, he starts with the present. Now Jesus is talking in AD 29. That's when Luke 21 takes place, AD 29. And he is talking about the temple. Now understand at this point, the temple is 500 years old because it's the second temple. Of course, the first temple was destroyed. So we have the second temple, and for the last 46 years, King Herod has been expanding, updating, and remodeling the temple, and that will continue for 36 more years. There will be 80 years of expanding, updating, and remodeling the temple, and it is, it is an architectural wonder. Let me read to us what Josephus the first century Middle Eastern historian, he writes in the book, The Wars of the Jews, he writes this. The whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration. It was completely covered with gold plates, which when the sun was shining on them glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders. And on the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such pure white that the strangers who had never previously seen them from a distance, they looked like a mountain of snow. The immensity of the temple. You know that the Temple Mount is 37 acres. It is a monstrosity, and it is elevated. If you've been to Israel, then you remember the Western Wall. Sometimes here we call it the Wailing Wall. I can assure you, no Jew calls it the Wailing Wall. They call it the Western Wall. It's a retaining wall because the temple itself has been destroyed. This is all that is left. How big is this retaining wall? Well, from the ground where the ground is now up, it is 61 feet tall. Below the surface, it is 45 feet down. In other words, the western wall, the retaining wall, of which you can only see a small portion, is 105 feet from what was the surface up, 105 feet. So if you go to Israel today, perhaps you will go into the rabbinic underground tunnels. And if you've gone in the rabbinic underground tunnels, then somebody probably has pointed out a western stone. The western stone is just one stone. It's way back in the tunnels. And let me give you an idea of the immensity of this stone. It is 45 feet long. The average bus today is somewhere between 38 and 41. This is 45 feet long. It is 11 feet wide. It is 10 feet high. The western stone weighs in excess of 200 thousand pounds. It's one stone. And by the way, it happens to be 25 feet up on the wall. How they ever got a 200,000 pound stone 25 feet up on the wall is, well, it's an engineering marvel. 
there's only theories of how they did it. Nobody knows for sure. This was the architectural marvel of what the temple mount and the temple itself was like. And so everyone believed that the temple was here to stay. And Jesus in AD 29, he predicts that that temple will be destroyed so that not even one stone will be lying on top of another. We can imagine that this prophecy in every way was unpopular. Yet we know exactly what happened, don't we? In AD 70, General Titus, who would later become Emperor Titus of the Roman Empire, he brought his army into Jerusalem, ransacked the city. He told his army, do not destroy the temple. And yet one of the soldiers, whether inadvertently or on purpose, lit the tapestry on fire. A raging inferno ensued. And Josephus talked to us about the plates of gold. It all melted. And it seeped into the stones down below where you would walk. And then when it cooled, the soldiers thought to themselves, we're not leaving that gold. And so they ripped up the floor, every stone, which collapsed the walls, which collapsed the ceiling, which ended the temple in AD 70. Jesus predicted it. In AD 29, it came true in AD 70. It was the most unlikely of predictions, yet historically we know from multiple sources that Jesus did predict it in 29, and it did come true in AD 70. Now we can ask, why did God allow his temple to be destroyed? Well, we can surmise many reasons, three which we know. First, Jesus predicted it, and everything Jesus predicts actually comes true. His predictions are 100% verifiable. The second reason is it was a visible symbol to the entire world that rejects Christ of the displeasure of God when we reject Christ. And third, think of what the purpose of the temple it's more than just a place to gather to hear the word of God. That now became something that took place in synagogues all over the world. But it was a place to sacrifice animals for a temporary payment or atonement of sin. But we don't need a temporary atonement of sin because we have the final atonement through Jesus Christ. So the primary purpose of the temple was no longer. Now I understand, as maybe you do, Ezekiel 40 to 48, 2 Thessalonians 2, tells us that we are going to have a third temple. It's going to be rebuilt, but right now it's not there. But even when it is rebuilt, it will not be for the purposes of temporary atonement of sin because Jesus made the final atonement for sin. He paid it all on our behalf. Now, we might ask this question. If Jesus is talking about the end times, why does he talk about an event in AD 70? It's kind of like this. These stylish glasses that I'm wearing that you guys all know I'm styling in, they're, they're bifocals. I've been wearing bifocals since I was 21. I'm a physical specimen falling apart. So... With a bifocal, you look at the lower lens and you see something lower or clear near, 
And then you look at the outer or upper lens and you see something far. That's how bifocals work, right? You have a nearer vision and you have a far vision. That's also how most prophecy works in the Bible. In the Bible, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And usually the near fulfillment is an illustration. It's a type. It's an example of what the far fulfillment will be. So the near fulfillment is the destruction of the temple. Jesus said, not a stone will be left on top of a stone. The temple mount will be destroyed. And it was. The far prediction is when Jesus comes back, that kind of destruction will be earth-wide. That kind of destruction is coming. And so he starts with a near prediction, the temple, and then immediately, verses 5 and 6, goes to a far prediction, verses 7 and 8. He looks at the lower part of the bifocals, 5 and 6, Now he looks at the upper part of the bifocals out, verses 7 and 8. And he says, many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Don't go after them. In other words, the closer you and I get to the end times, the more false prophets, false teachers, false churches, false gospels, these will be multiplied many times over. And he says, don't go after them. In other words, focus on truth. The Bible is clear. The closer we get to the return of Christ, the more false teaching will emerge. When will Jesus come? We don't know. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said of the date and time, neither the Son, Jesus on earth, nor the angels in heaven, but only my Father knows of that time. While Jesus was on earth, even he didn't know when he was coming back. He knows now, but he didn't know. Is Jesus coming today? Maybe. He better be ready. Is he coming tomorrow? Maybe. It's imminent. It's any moment. Is he coming a year from now? Possibly. Is he coming in two millennial? Very possible. We don't know, but the call is to be ready, and part of the call is to be ready by focusing on Scripture because false teachers, false prophets emerge. Now, if you know anything about uh, how I write sermons, I manuscript, and I manuscript long time in advance. So this particular sermon I manuscripted in February of 2018. And that was the week, by the way, that Billy Graham died. And Billy Graham was not a false teacher. He was a true teacher, not a perfect man, not even perfect theologically, but he proclaimed salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone and the need to give our lives to Christ. He did that faithfully, but there's a gal, I don't know anything about her, her name is Lauren Duca, and she writes for Teen Vogue, and she tweeted the following. She said, the big news is that Billy Graham was even alive. Have fun in hell, And I won't even tell you her last word. You probably read it. That's false teaching. She's saying that the message that Billy Graham taught, salvation by faith in Christ alone, that will lead to hell. Now, I don't know that she's theologically astute enough to understand that that's what she said, but that is what she said. A week earlier, The View 
made the declaration that if you believe that God is still teaching and God is still moving stones and God is still interacting with us, then you are mentally ill. That's false teaching. That's contradicted by God's inspired word. That's contradicted by what I know to be true in my life and my heart. Jesus tells us that the closer we get to his return, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in two millennia, we just don't know, but the closer we get to his return, the more false teachers and false prophets and false churches, they are going to arise and they are going to have a great uptick And so we need to focus on truth. Every day that passes, we get one day closer to Christ's return, and we need to focus on truth. I think of Acts 17, the 11th verse. We read that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they heard the word with great eagerness. And then they went home and they checked to make sure that the sermon was right. It's what it says. Do you know who was preaching those sermons they were double-checking on? Paul. You guys get Jeff. They got Paul. And they received the sermons with great eagerness. But then they double-checked to make sure that what Paul was saying actually paralleled the truth of Scripture. And the Bible says they were more noble. The closer we get to the end times, the more you, I, we need to focus on truth. In addition, we need to focus on courage in Christ. Let me read verses 9 to 11. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. When he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Do not be terrified. How are we doing with that? How are we doing as Christ followers? How are we doing in our society? We read about what took place in the C7, C7 ministries or meetings. Are we terrified? We read about what's taking place in Singapore or Jong-un. Are we terrified? We read about Putin and Crimea and his continual grip on what used to be Eastern Europe. Are we terrified? We read about China creating seven islands in the shipping lanes of the South Sea, one of the most important shipping lanes in the world, and declaring that they have 12 nautical niles, 22 kilometers around each one is sovereign territory. Are we terrified? We're talking about rolling blackouts and the destruction of our electric grid, and we're talking about cyber war, and we're talking about environmental disasters. Are we terrified? There's a difference between wise understanding, seeking to solve real problems. We ought to do that. Seeking to solve pestilence and violence and famine. We ought to do that. 
but we ought not to be terrified. There's a difference between seeking to correct the ills of our society and the ills of our land, but we ought not to be terrified. I think Jesus is saying, chill, baby, chill. That's part of the red letter edition. If you have an older one, he says, focus on courage in Christ. Will there be an uptick in wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine and violence the closer we get to the return of Christ? Scripture says there will be. There will be. But it also says do not be terrified. You know, every age has felt like Christ is going to return. Those who lived in the 200 years prior to Christ and 300 years after They thought it was the Roman Empire that would bring the return of Christ. In AD 70 and the eruption of Mount Vesuvius that destroyed Pompeii, people said it's the return of Christ. Then the fall of the Roman Empire with the Franks and the Vandals and the Jutes and the Angles and the Saxons, everybody said it is the return of Christ. And then we go into the Dark Ages, really 400 years of illiteracy and sickness, and the black plague, which will continue out of the dark ages. And everyone said it's the return of Christ. And then we have the the corruptness of the church leading up to the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. And everyone said it's the return of Christ. And then it was World War I and World War II and tsunamis and volcanoes. And people say it's the return of Christ. And Matthew 24, 36 says, The day and the hour you cannot know. You cannot know. But prepare yourself for the word of God and have courage in Christ. Even if the world is out of control, Christ is in control. Have courage in Christ. Focus on truth. Focus on courage in Christ. And Focus on ministry. Let me read verses 12 to 18. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Listen to this, verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now who would have expected that verse? This is all gloom and doom. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to mediate. That is, to look for excuses, a way out to compromise. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to mediate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The closer we get to the return of Christ, the more the name of Christ will be denigrated. You will be hated for my namesake, but not a hair of your head eternally will perish. Focus on ministry. We would not expect that, would we? We would expect when he's talking about persecution and the like, that we ought to focus on survival, going underground. He says, focus on ministry. Focus on the opportunity in front of you. We look at society and we can see a downward slide, not only in this country, but across most of the world. The new morality is immorality. 
We've redefined marriage. We can't put the Ten Commandments out on a lawn because that would spiritually violate someone else. We can't sing sacred songs and we can't have sacred prayers. You go into a store in December and this poor hapless 16-year-old who's at the, the counter has been told to tell you happy holiday. And what do you do? Well, we get angry, we get bitter. It's our right. And so we say something like this, you jerk. It's Merry Christmas. Don't you know that God came because he loved you, idiot? It's kind of how we sometimes act, not you. It says be prepared to mediate, to think through how we will respond. Is it the 16-year-old or 18-year-old or 45-year-old's fault that they've been instructed to say happy holidays? It's not. And so I pour my anger and my venom on them? It says in verse 13, seize the opportunity for ministry. Think through in my mind how we will respond. How we'll respond at work if somebody encourages us to do something unethical. Think through. And seize the opportunity for ministry. If someone encourages us to do something immoral, how we will respond and seize the opportunity for ministry. We need to think through the closer we get to the end times, the closer we get to the return of Christ. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in two millennia, we don't know. But the closer we get, the more we will be denigrated for our faith. And this is the opportunity not to hide but for ministry. Focus on the truth. Focus on courage in Christ. And focus on ministry. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it in our minds, what we will say, what we will do. Nobody wants to be persecuted for our faith. But listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 15. Great advice. He said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And this part's not on the PowerPoint, my fault. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. How do we give a response for the hope that is within us? With gentleness and respect. And we focus on ministry rather than hiding our light under a bushel. Focus on truth, focus on courage in Christ, focus on ministry, and focus on perseverance. Verse 19 of today's text, the last one. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus isn't saying that we earn salvation. We can't earn salvation. It's a free gift. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus offered himself, paid the penalty of our sin, which is death on the cross. And we, by faith, ask him to forgive us, to cleanse us, to empower us. And then we seek to persevere. I understand for most of us, it's two steps forward, one step back. That's not what the text is arguing against. It's saying that in the long haul of our lives, 
in Christ, there will be perseverance. There will be growth. There will be fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. There will be fruit in our life if we truly know Christ. I think of the way John put it in 1 John 2.19. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. The closer we get to the return of Christ, the more evident it ought to be that we are Christ followers. There ought to be a difference in how we live and what we talk about and what we watch and how we exercise our lives. There ought to be a noticeable difference, not because we act holier than thou, or we look down at people, it should never be like that. But there ought to be such a transformation in our lives. There ought to be such perseverance in our faith that they say there's something different. So the closer we get to Christ, the more you and I focus on truth and courage in Christ and ministry and perseverance in our faith. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you that we who know your Son as Savior have a future and a hope in heaven. And Father, if there's some here today that have not yet believed in your Son for salvation, may today be the day that they too, as we all must, confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior and accept your Son Jesus as the payment of our confessed sin and believe in Christ and ask him for eternal life. And for we who have accepted Christ as we await either the end of our earthly life or the return of your son at the rapture, help us, Father, empower us through your spirit to focus on truth and focus on courage in Christ and focus on ministry and focus on perseverance in our faith. For your glory, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. As we close